Hi Creepsters, Barry Marino here. Uh, this week we're going to be offering another classic Open Shutters episode. This one's from Season 2. It was originally, it was originally dropped on January 20th. Legend of a cryptid that will surely keep you up at night. And I know you'll love a good conspiracy theory because who doesn't? Join me, Kayla, as my co-host Lexi and I tell you stories that will keep you coming back for more on our show, A Little Wicked. You can find A Little Wicked on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Check out our website, alittlewickedpodcast.webador.com, and our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all under, you guessed it, A Little Wicked. We can't wait to tell you our stories. Scary ghosts, creepy serial killers, all things that go bump in the night. Enjoy the view from the open shutters. <laughs> Hi, Creepsters. I'm Barry Marino, and this is another episode of Open Shutters, a creepy podcast. Now, you know, this is somebody that's not here today. It's just me by myself. Well, Philip is out. He's uh, having a few little health issues. We're hoping that he comes back soon. But we also have some really awesome news. A couple of really awesome people are going to be joining us. We have Andrew Fontenot, who is a, a friend of Philip's and mine, and uh, he's a really big movie buff and a really big expert on classic films. So I'm excited about what type of movie reviews we're going to do with him. I'd also like to spin off, but it just seems like I never seem to have enough time for, for this podcast, much less for two of them. But hopefully we'll be able to do that at some time in the future. And another one, oh, God, this lady is just, oh, she is my heart. I love her. She had a podcast called Don't Look Under the Bed with, with another friend of hers. And uh, their podcast ended kind of abruptly about a year ago uh, due to some things, under, unforeseen things. But she has decided to join us. And the cool part about it is that she lives in Canada. So all of her episodes are going to be remote. But uh, she is so good. She is so funny and so witty. And the banter will just work so well. That's what I miss about this episode is I don't have the banter with Philip or the horoscopes either. I'm also foregoing the obits this week because uh, we really haven't had any real notable deaths, but we had so many in the last episode, it doesn't really matter. So anyway, um, Shaughnessy's going to be joining us for some episodes, and uh, I just can't wait to work with her. I can't wait to talk to her. And it's going to be kind of cool. It's going to be interesting to different parts of the continent. You know, I'm way down here in New Orleans, and she's up there in Canada. So I'm looking forward to all that. Uh, the second thing I want to do before I start into this movie review podcast that we're doing today is I want to shout out to a couple of really awesome podcasts that I found thanks to the Morbid Ladies. First one I'm going to mention is Generation Y. That's Generation W-Y-H-Y, the, the, the word Y, not the letter. And these guys have like a ton of episodes and... 
they're a lot more serious oriented than we are, but they are so thorough and they, they, they discuss their cases and they, and they, they cover cases that a lot of them, a lot of them are, are, are real, but some of them are, are, are real. They're all real. A lot of them are, are famous or well known, but some of them are kind of like my unholy matrimony case was is kind of obscure. And sometimes I like hearing about things that happened a long time ago. So uh this is a uh, Generation Y and it is hosted by by uh Aaron Habel, Justin Evans, and Dennis Rader. Well Dennis Rader is a guest host, but Justin and Aaron are, are the permanent hosts. And um they um I talked to Justin on Facebook Messenger, really, really, really nice guy. Now, the next one, this lady is totally, totally awesome. Her name is Kristen Seavey, and she hosts a podcast called Murder, She Said. And I got to her, I got both of them from, from, uh, from Ash and Elena at Morbid. But uh, I listened to her. She, had, she, she does like two and three-parters because she goes very, very much into detail about her cases. And... I learned so much about these two cases. One of them was James Hicks, a serial killer, which <laughs> I'd love to cover this case, but I don't know if I could do it justice after it being covered by morbid and murder, she said. Another one is a recent, uh, is a recent case uh, called uh, about a man named uh, Brandon. What's his name again? Oh, Lord. There she is. Yeah, Brandon Embry, and it's a mysterious murder of a young man, and she is really covered. I'm in the part three, like in the middle of it, because I listened in the car, and I got home, and I can't wait to go to work today just so I can listen to it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, those are, that, that's all our exciting news. Uh, we got a little wish. Uh, let's wish Godspeed on Philip and hope that he gets well real, real soon, because Philip is still very, very much a part of this show. Okay, today's episode is going to, it's, it's going to, I'm covering, I'm, I'm going to be reviewing a film. And with it being Black uh, History Month, it's what they used to call a black exploitation film. Now, I took my old blog, which was a blog I had called Barry Marino's Drive-In Trash Go-Go. Well, you know, I had two bad movie blogs, Barry Marino's Favorite Bad Movies and Barry Marino's uh, Driving Trash and Go-Go. Well, Trash and Go-Go only did three reviews. But um, these movies are of note, because just, just because of how bad they are. But the one we're reviewing today is 1973's Blackenstein. And um, it was, uh, I mean, you know, just read the blog, and I will, uh, I will, uh, <laughs> I'm going to read the blog. And you'll learn everything about it from there. As some of you may remember, and if you're new to our podcast, I have another business that has finally become live on the internet. It's Barry Marino's Craft Creations. I have made ha Afghans, hats, scarves, and much more. And more coming weekly. Great thing is, we sell holiday items all year round, so you don't have to wait till that special time of the year to order what you will like and enjoy. Thanks to our Roz, it's easy 
interactive website to see what has been put on the internet. And after a long wait, finally, we got the Gentilly Lace line of candles live. We have wonderful scents for any household or just for the season. Also, be on the lookout for our Christmas and New Year's holiday candles. And guess what? Our seasonal candles will have something a little special in them. A little out of the ordinary, but we have put charms in the candles. From king cake babies for Mardi Gras to champagne flutes for New Year's. So look out for our website, barrymarinoscraftcreations.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-M-A-R-I-N-O-C-R-A-F-T-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. Okay, creepsters, we're back. And uh, I got a little tongue-tied at the end of that, and I threw my Barry Marino's Craft Creation commercials in there. We're sponsored by Barry Marino's Craft Creations and Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. All right, uh, we're talking today. This is Black History Month, and I don't know if this is the best representation of uh, African-American cinema, but it is very, very much a part of black history. Uh, you know, Hollywood hasn't always been kind to African-Americans. Uh, and, you know, that began with, like, D.W. Griffin in 1915 with Birth of a Nation, where he has the, uh, the white folks are fighting for their Aryan heritage, and the KKK saves the day from these evil black people that are taking over the country. And kind of sound familiar. There's a few people that think like that today. But anyway... Um, then we had the frightened Uncle Toms in the 30s and the 40s. These men, and they would make the, you know, some of them, there was one, some, there was one actor, and he had like a goiter or some type of thing that makes your eyes pop out, and they used that for comic effect, which was really horrible. So African-American characters had been presented either as servants, buffoons, or both. But things began to change in the late 1950s, and Sidney Poitier became, who we recently lost, who recently passed away, he became the first black leading man and the first black actor to win the Best Actor Oscar, which is really cool. Then in the 60s, thanks to Motown Records, African-American musicians crossed over into the mainstream. Now, the Ayanna Ross became what was probably known as the first African-American female superstar. Because she's the one, she, she crossed over, I mean, it's big as Ronnie Spector, who we lost last week, was. Uh, who, you know, also very, very much a trailblazer. But uh, Diana Ross actually crossed over into film and television and had like more like a Barbara Streisand share type of a career. So, you know, you know, became the gay icon, the whole nine yards. With, you know, with every female entertainer really aspires to have to be. So by the 70s, Hollywood noticed that there was a huge audience for black-oriented films. So that started with 1971's Shaft. And that's, that, wasn't, that was a pretty moderately Hollywood-budget film. And, but it started a new budget of low... Uh, a new genre... New budget. New genre of low-budget... Films known, they, they, they got to be known as black exploitation because they were sort of exploitation films. But they were for, and it was the first time they had made the movies for African American audiences. Even though these movies were made by white people, 
and they were enjoyed by African-American audiences, but I guess it was all there was back then. So most of these films were very violent, and it was action fair. And the basic, basic plot was usually some innocent African-American or some pimp or, or, or a thug wanting to be to go straight or something, and the white folks won't let them. But they were even exploited by the mean honkies, which was a 70 term for white folks. I don't understand the background of that. I don't know where that came from. I don't know what it means. I still don't show, but it's rarely ever used today. As a matter of fact, it's used as a joke about the 70s today because it's just so 70s, the whole thing. Now, as predictable as these films were, they were usually popular. They were very, very popular. They got big box office. And they made stars of Richard Roundtree, who played uh, Shaft, Fred Williamson, who starred in many of them, and, of course, my favorite, Pam Greer. Pam Greer was this I really drop-dead gorgeous woman. And she started off in these other exploitation films, these Films made in the Philippines about the women in prison and everything. And sometimes she played a, a, a woman that was wrong. One, one movie, she was a, a woman wrongly accused. And then in another one, she was a mean prison matron. <laughs> and, um, but a real symbol of 70s black exploitation movies is Pam Greer in a halter top. And she had very, very, very large breast. Hole in the gun with a giant Afro hairdo. And... As her, as the movies go along, her hair gets smaller because <laughs> that that that, that um, hairstyle went out of style eventually. But um, Pam went actually went on. She did uh, Foxy Brown for Quentin Tarantino. She went on to a better career. She she actually went on to become a major star in, in major motion pictures, and she's she's pretty much a she's a legend today. So I guess since Hollywood was running out of action plots, they figured it was time to to move black exploitation into the equally lucrative horror genre. You know, horror films were starting to get that popular again at that time. The TV show Dark Shadows and the Vampires and the Hammer films, well, like the Dracula films and Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper and things like that, the horror genre was really getting popular again. So the result of this idea was Blackula from 1972. And it starred the classically trained actor named William Marshall. And he played an African prince turned into a vampire by the baddest of all honkies, Count Dracula himself. Now, Blackula was so successful that it not only spawned a sequel called Scream, Blackula Scream, but guess who the female lead in that was? You guessed it, Pam Greer, my girl. But it also started. Uh, it also started up a black exploitation horror subgenre. Now it was DJ's Revenge, which was filmed right here in New Orleans, which was about a gangster, an African American gangster who was murdered by these thugs and buried. And through a voodoo ritual, he comes back and gets revenge on all his his killers. There was also Abby, which was about a house a preacher's wife that gets possessed by the devil. Definitely an Exorcist ripoff because it was 1974, right after the Exorcist had come out, and you know she has the, the, the throwing up the pea soup and the, the horrible face and everything like that, and she gets exercised. And but the cherry of the cake on the cake. Oh, this is this big awful mess we do it now. It's called Blackenstein. See, I guess they figure since Dracula was so popular, 
they had to do a African-American version of Blackenstein. But this film has to be seen to be believed. See, the uh, plot goes with Dr. Uh, Winfred Walker, played by Avi Stone, a lovely young African-American woman. And she decides to go to work for her med school mentor, Dr. Stein. Oh, Dr. Stein, like in Frankenstein, get it? <laughs> so Winnie, uh, Winnie's boyfriend, Eddie Turner, has lost both arms and both legs in Vietnam. And it just so happens that Dr. Stein's specialty is regrowing lost body parts using DNA injections. DNA in 1973? I didn't even know there was such a thing. <laughs> I wonder how, how, how. I'm sure that the 1973 audiences didn't explain, didn't understand that one too well. Well, Walker and Stein make Eddie an offer to make him whole again. But at first he resists. He doesn't know if he wants to do it. But when he's ridiculed by the mean white orderly, he decides to let Mr. Stein experiment on him. Boy, talk about a bad move that is. So Dr. Stein moves Eddie into his very gothic mansion hospital with its very large dungeon-like lab. Cliché much? As a matter of fact, I actually think that was an actual set from one of the Universal Horror films, from what I read somewhere about it. And uh, the DNA injections are success. His arms and legs grow back. And when they did this without stem cells, huh? Ah, <laughs> I wonder with all uh, those, them Christian women against uh, the Christian people against uh, stem cell research. Let's think about that. They must love that part. But alas, this is a trash a go go blaxportation horror film. Something must go wrong, and it does. <clears throat> it seems that Malcolm, Dr. Stein's man service, has developed a serious crush on Dr. Winnie. Of course, Dr. Winnie rebuffs his offers because she loves Eddie, right? So Malcolm decides to sabotage the experiment, and he sneaks into Edgy's dungeon cell. I love this. <laughs> dungeon cell. Oh, good Lord. And faster than you can say, it's moving. It's alive. Eddie's head becomes square. He starts moaning like Boris Karloff and walks into the night with his arms stretched out. <gasps> you think Eddie could be Blackenstein? Ooh. So Eddie Blackenstein, he starts going on these violent rampages and gory murders. And his first victim is the mean white orderly at the Veterans Hospital. And when that dude says he'll tear you limb for limb, he really means it. Then <laughs> he uh, murders a fornicating couple. Now, this was played by Jerry Seuss. How do you pronounce it? Is that Susie? Susie. And Liz Renee. She was a now Liz Renee was a former girlfriend of a gangster back in the 50s. And she wouldn't turn in, testify against the, the, the mob. So they, they put her in prison for three years. And like she herself said, who is going to rat on Murder Incorporated? They'd be crazy, right? But Liz Renee is known to audiences. She was she was a stripper and a model and and she's and she's an actress in like these low budget films. And uh, her biggest claim to fame is a movie by John Waters called Desperate Living. 
to which uh, they, that's the one where all these people go to the board. Feel I gotta review this movie. It, it, it's it's too good not to. But these people, all these criminals, run off to and hide in this town where there's this this really nasty ass queen played by you know the John Waters favorite Edith uh, Edith uh, Massey, and uh, Liz plays a lesbian living with the really, really butch woman and. It's so funny. She names her titties and everything like that. I, I do. Oh, well, I got to do that one. So uh, she has, uh, so they, what he does to women is he tears out all, you know, he disembowels them and throws their intestines at their corpses. That is really, really, that's kind of sick, even to put that in a movie. So he, th these poor actresses have to lay there pretending that they're dead while somebody throws sausage at them. Oh. So, of course, you know, all these murders are going on, but Winnie and Dr. Stein have no idea that Eddie is a monster. Even when the two cops call, come by, two cops come by and tell them about the murders. And they haven't even noticed that he's got a square head now and moans like Boris Karloff. My God, what is up with these people? <laughs> So anyway, the two doctors are so damn clueless that Eddie Blackenstein goes on another murder rampage. Now, uh, we stopped it. At this point, the action in the movie stops. And there's a really bad stand-up comedy telling some really bad jokes. And then we get a blues singer. The lady was pretty good. She was, she was she, her, you know, great voice and everything. But did this really belong in the movie? You know, this is this long segment... And as lovely as her voice is, she, the song has no place in the film. And it's a really long segment. Take, it's about, it's about uh, like 10 minutes long. Just filler. They didn't have anything else to put in it, so it's filler. So meanwhile, he manages to kill another couple. And guess what? You got it. He disembowels the woman, throws her intestines at her. I wonder how the writer of the script was to hate it women, the way he has these women being, just being, uh, so brutally treated. I think today, and I don't know if that would, you know, they talk about the violence in women in horror films. This is the worst violence uh, against women I have seen in any film. So then uh, he goes back home, and the only to find Malcolm in the process of trying to rape Winnie. So... He tried, Malcolm tries to fight the ball, but of course it's useless and he gets strangled to death. So Winnie runs to Dr. Spine and tells him that Eddie is a monster. <gasps> Horrors. I had no idea. <laughs> so then she does what any intelligent woman would do when being chased by a monster. She goes down in the lab and prepares an injection. Smart. How'd she get through med school? <laughs> So Blackenstein attacks Winnie, and just when he thinks you think that she's going to be killed, the last bit of his humanity keeps him from hurting her because he notices who she is, and he realizes that he's in love with her. So Dr. Stein runs into the lab and tries to destroy the monster, only to be thrown into his equipment and electrocuted. We've never seen that in a movie that was so fresh and new, wasn't it? Oh, my God. This movie is definitely mystery science. Mystery science ready, I'm telling you. 
So um, the next scene, we find our protagonist in the, uh, in the garage, and this young woman's about to go out in her dune buggy. Just this random woman, you know, random pretty young girl, and she's about to go around riding on the beach in her dune buggy, which is kind of a um, stupid idea in the middle of the night. But this movie also has that, that Plan 9 from Outer Space quality where you can't tell if it's day or night. So the monster grabs her and takes her to this warehouse-looking place. But she escapes. She gets away. And, you know, they, they go through this chase. He's looking for her, and she's hiding, and he's looking for her, and she's hiding. But, poor girl, just like every other female character in this movie, with the exception of Winnie and the singer, she also gets murdered and has her intestines thrown at her. So the police finally catch up with Blackenstein, and they release a pack of Dobermans on them. Dobermans were real popular in the early 70s because there was that movie, The Doberman Gang and The Daring Doberman. And for some reason, it was the dog breed that everybody wanted was a Doberman. So these Dobermans attack him and tear him to pieces. The end. Now, come on. You really have to see this film to believe it. It's... <laughs> I don't think there's one redeeming feature in the whole movie. The acting is dreadful. The script seems like it was written by somebody in high school, maybe even a second grader. Oh, God, it's terrible. And the lighting is horrible. And some of the scenes are so dark, you can't even tell what's going on. And, of course, you know, bullets and nothing, uh, you know, nothing could kill this monster. But a few dogs tear him to pieces. No, 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 that doesn't really make any sense. See, I, this film came out, I was in, probably in high school. And, but it disappeared pretty fast. It was like in, the, in a few movie theaters, and then it was gone. And you never really saw it again. You know, Blackula kept on coming back. And then, Bla and then Scream, Blackula, Scream, which actually the Golden Turkey Awards, a book that I had read in the late 70s, a book about the late 70s, uh, Michael and Harry Medved. I may not agree with Michael Medved's politics, but he's on spot about bad movies, I gotta say. But uh, they, they were giving out these little awards to the, um, to the worst of all, and it was the worst black exploitation movie, and this was one of the nominees, and so was Scream Bacula Scream, and Scream Bacula Scream won. I guess mainly because they had such a talented actor playing the lead, and he was so wasted in that type of film. But Scream Block Hill Scream has Pam Greer, and it's and it's it's a much more entertaining. This one should have won for the worst, because this movie is really this is a stinker. This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. And um I've read reviews from different people online. I, I found this movie. Let's go back a little about how I found it. You know where I found this? I hadn't heard anything about it in years, and a DVD was in the $5 Walmart bin. This was about, oh, about 10, 12 years ago. And it's, um, it's, avail it's one of those things, I think it's in public domain, because it's, it's available on all types of different uh, formats, and I believe you can even watch it on YouTube. Now, I, I did read a lot of reviews from people online about this, and it's got like a mixed reaction. Because there's some people that think it's beyond bad. Well, as, uh, you know, there's others that think it's so bad it's good. It's a campy delight. 
And I watched it a couple of times, and I begin to agree with the ones who think it's so bad it's good, because it's just astonishing that this film was ever made. And um, the first time you watch it, you have to get past, you got, really got to get past about how unbelievably bad it is. I mean, it, 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 it makes Blood Feast, the, lo the last film I, I reviewed on, on this podcast by myself, I did a solo episode, you know, and Herschel Gordon-Lewis, it makes Blood Feast look like Citizen Kane. It's really, really awful. And, uh, but then, you know, when you, and, and it's, it's gore is so disturbing and it's treatment of women is just so offensive, especially now in the Me Too era. We know how horrible this movie, you know, this movie's treatment of women really is. But then, uh, once you get past all that, you can, um, you can enjoy its, uh, campy elements. It's available on DVD. I got it from, a the, the copy I had was from Xenon Pictures. And the transfer is from a very bad print, but I don't even know if a good print exists because the movie's almost 50 years old. But anyway, I'll give you the credits now. Okay. Blackenstein is directed by, is directed by William A. Levy and um, produced and, direct, and written by Frank R. Salatry. Salatry. And it stars John Hart, that's Dr. Stein. I, no, I think John Hart is, is John Hart Dr. Stein or is he, um, is he Eddie? I'm going to have to take a look-see and, and check it out. I think he's Eddie. I mentioned it earlier, I know. So, yeah, Ivy Stone is, uh, is Dr. Winnie and... Yes, I didn't mention who it is. Okay, so it's um, it's it's John. Uh, it stars. Oh come on, why did I do that again? <laughs> there we go. Yeah, it stars uh, John Hart, Ivory uh, Ivory Stone, uh, Andrea King, Roosevelt Jackson, Joe DeSue, Nick Bowen, and of course the wonderful Liz Renee. Oh Lord, I wish Liz would have done more movies. Now, um, here's a little background on it. According to director William A. Levy, non-actor Joe DeSue was cast in the title. Oh, Joe DeSue is, is Eddie. Because he was a client of a, of a criminal lawyer who turned writer-producer Frank R. Cellini and was a celebrity cult, as was um, celebrity cult icon Liz Renee. So, uh, Salaretti also wrote, produced, and directed the never-released Black the Ripper. Oh, God. I'd love to see that one. And he wrote screens for two unmade Sherlock Holmes movie. Sherlock Holmes Adventures in the, in the Adventures of Werewolf and the Baskervilles and Sherlock Holmes in the Adventures of the Golden Vampire. Which was to start Alice Cooper as Dracula. <laughs> well, he later got to do Dark Shadows as himself. And, oh, in 1982, he was murdered in a gangland style in his mansion, formerly owned by Beryl Lugosi. God, that's a pretty interesting background, isn't it? Now, um, I don't know where you can get, like I said, you probably can find a DVD of this movie somewhere. And I know that, uh, that it's probably on YouTube somewhere. But what makes it a little hard to watch is just the quality 
I guess it was. It, I guess it was filmed with very, very cheap film in the first place. It almost looks like it was filmed on 16 millimeter, and blown into 35, which gives it the effect of you remember like, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a G VHS tape, and it had all that grain, and it, that that that's what it looked like. Oh, it looked like it was transferred to the DVD I had from a VHS tape, and it is creepy. The uh, Blackenstein is pretty, pretty scary, and it is gory, but it's really... So, okay, you know, Philip and I usually rate movies with shudders. Five being the best, one being a real stinker. And this is the first time, I think, it's the first time. Maybe, well, I didn't rate Blood Feast because we didn't have the rating system then. But I think this is the only reason I'm, I'm giving it one shudder because that's all it really... Maybe one and a half because of its campy value. But that's all it really deserves. Because, let me tell you. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I, I do recommend watching this movie. If you can get through it, if you can get through the violence, try not to get too offense, offended by the, the violence against the women because we got to, you, you know, you got to understand it's 1973. The women's movement was just starting out. And... There was still a lot of men that had a lot of issues with women, and I think they showed it in, 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 in their art and in their work. Now, most black exploitation films of that era, they had, you know, they were kind of feminists in a way, because Pam Greer was the badass, and she kicked everybody's ass, whether all the bad guys, whether they were black or white. And the thing I always liked about her films is good and bad wasn't just divided among the races. I mean, they had bad black people and they had bad white people and she was just a hero she was always some woman like one of them i think it's sheba baby she made so many movies one of them was um uh her she was a nurse and some all these drug pins got her sisters on drugs so she goes ahead and with her badass self and and just mows them all down with a machine gun that's it's you know she just gets them down Picks them off one by one. That's my kind of movie. Pam is my kind of girl. This seems like a big old love letter to Pam Greer. Well, it is. I'd love to write a love letter to Pam Greer. All righty. Um, this is a shortest, one of our shortest episodes ever, you know. And because um, it's just me by myself, and I have no banter and nobody to, to joke back and forth with. But next week we're going to have, we'll, we'll have another banter show. Either Philip will be back. And we're going to have Shaughnessy, and we're going to have Andrew, and we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm not sure what our subject is going to be next week. That will be announced later. So you can follow us on Twitter at A Shutters, Instagram at Open Shutters, a creepy podcast. Our Facebook page is the official page for Open Shutters, a creepy podcast. Our email is openshutters at yahoo.com or Movie shutters at AOL. Now, I want to hear from some people. I'd like to get some more reviews on um, on Apple. And I want to hear from some people. I wish you guys would email me more. I want to hear some movie suggestions. And then some cases you might want to cover. Because we've got Shaughnessy now. And we're going to do... She, and I know she probably has access to a lot of, um, of, of Canada cases. I wish she would have been with us for the Luke Magnata case. Because I'm sure she could have added a lot to that. And um, 
I don't know. There's some there's some uh, some cases in in Canada like the Barbie and Ken killers. I'd like to do that one with Shaughnessy. So anyway, uh, until next time, enjoy the view from the open shutters. And as Philip would say, don't fall out of the window. Unless you make a really bad movie about a black Frankenstein that goes around throwing women's guts at him after he kills them. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. People, he, he was a he was a major suspect in that killing, but they never did find enough evidence. Now, Mrs. Maggio's throat was cut so deeply that her head was nearly severed from her shoulders. Now, second, uh, uh, the next victims were uh, Louis uh, Besmeer and his mistress Harriet Lowe. They were attacked in the early morning hours of June 27, 1918, in the quarters at the back of the grocery, which was located on the corner of Dergemont and La Harp, not far from here. In the Gentilly area, and I thought another grocer. What was his issue with grocers? Well, that's what a lot of the Italian immigrants walk with. Well, I knew, I knew that, yeah, yeah. Now, were they actually Italian of the names? Not these, no. This was a German man, and he was a ah, uh, but once again, another and immigrant. a bakery driver found them. And then, um, Harriet said that he did it, that, that Lewis did it, and then tried to cover it by hitting himself with the axe. But nothing ever came of those But still a lot of immigrants or yeah. immigrant descent. Yeah. yeah. Now, next was Anna Schneider. This was a German immigrant. Yeah. And she was attacked in the early evening hours of August 5th, 1918. She was eight months pregnant. Oh. And um, she was 28 years old. She lived on Palmyra Street in Mid-City. And she awoke to a dark figure standing over and it was bashed repeatedly. She survived and gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Now next we have Joseph uh, Romano, who was an elderly man living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. And on August 10th, 1918, Pauline and Mary woke up to the sound of commotion in the adjoining room where their uncle resided. And they discovered that their uncle had taken a serious blow to the head, which resulted in two open cuts. Uh, the assailant was seen fleeing as they arrived, and young girls were able to distinguish that he was dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. Now, uh, Romano was able to walk to the ambulance, but he died two days later with severe head trauma. Ugh. And, um... Next victim was uh, Charles Cordomiglia. Miglia. He was an Italian immigrant who lived with his wife Rosie and the infant daughter. This happened in Gretna, which is... A suburb across the street, across the river from New Orleans. So he was just going whatever neighborhood yeah. he wanted to go to. And the next one, the wife and the, the 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 husband and the wife survived, but the baby died, and they were um 
they um, had blamed a um, a neighbor by the name of Frank Card. Uh, what's his name? I gotta look at these notes. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Carl Miguel, and, and they had uh, Frank Giordano was a was a neighbor, and the, Rosie said that he did it, and but with no he evidence. was charged. He just claimed it. Yeah, he was charged oh. and convicted and sentenced to hang. And almost a year later, Rosie announced she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy, and a statement was the only evidence. So, thank God were, we have both more guys. Were, were, thank God we have more types of evidence nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> now, number 10 was Steve Bucker, grocery attacked in his bedroom as he slept by an axe-wielding intruder on August 10th, 1919. He awoke to find a dark figure looming over his bed upon regaining consciousness. Bucker ran to the street to investigate the intrusion and found that his head had been cracked open. And he ran to the home of his neighbor, Frank Tenjusa, where he lost consciousness and collapsed. Nothing had been taken from the home once again, and the panel on the back door had been chiseled away. Parker recovered from his injuries but could not remember the, any of the details of the trauma. Sarah Lumman was attacked on September 3, 1919. She was a young woman who had lived alone and someone broke into her home when she didn't answer. They discovered 19-year-old laying unconscious in bed, suffering from severe head injury and missing several teeth. The intruder had entered the apartment through an open window and attacked a woman with a blunt object. A bloody ox was discovered on the front lawn. And she recovered from her injuries and couldn't recall the attack. Now we come into my family. Right. Uh, Mike Pepitone was attacked on the night of October 27, 1919. His wife was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of his bedroom just as a large axe man was fleeing the scene. Mike Pepitone had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood spatter covered the majority of the room, including the painting of the Virgin Mary. Mrs. Pepitone, mother of six children, was unable to describe any characteristics of the killing, and the Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged Axeman attacks. Now that, Mike Pepitone, that is, that's my great uncle. His wife, Esther, is my grandmother's sister. Now, um, there are some accounts, some people who may believe that it wasn't an Axeman murder. Because uh, from what I'm reading, Michelle Mike Pepitone was uh, not a very nice woman, not a very nice man. Uh, he had been charged with a murder back in like 1910, and some think that this was a vendetta against the And they were the masking family. it as yeah. the Axeman, maybe? And, well, this was, they, were, they were thinking that he was, you know... That it was a vendetta killing, and they, they and it was attributed to the Axe Man. And they just used that time and place, yeah. Yeah, and because um, where is it? Here, it says, um, because his head had been bashed 18 times with at least oh one weapon, and it was hard to tell just what had happened because his skull was so badly damaged, and it was battered into almost an unrecognizable mass. Ooh. Now, Esther, Ann Esther told the police that she caught a glimpse of two shadow figures in the darkened bedroom, but she couldn't identify the man. And the two wordlessly slipped towards the back of the house through the room where two? Pepitone, six children, was sleeping and exited through the back door. Now, she said he was in agony, and every time he turned his head, blood came from his head. 
She threw open the window and been screaming. And the 11-year-old daughter, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, right. wound up becoming the murder victim herself. But the, the, you she just wanted to point two help. figures. Yeah. The Axeman was known to work alone. Yes. And another thing, too, that I noticed huh? that nobody else is noticing. First of all, she says, you know, they asked, how did she sleep while her husband was being attacked and she was laying next to him? And then another account says she came to the door and saw the man. So did they have separate bedrooms? Or was she sleeping next to him? How bad was their marriage? <laughs> I'm wondering because, okay, I'll tell you. Out of all her, um, I, I didn't know, I knew, I never knew her or Mike. They both died way before I was born. I knew their daughter, Josephine, who, was the, who would have been... Well, didn't people sleep in separate beds back then, though? Uh, no, because some of these ones, the wife is sleeping next to the husband. Oh, that's right. We are talking about Italians. Here, yeah, so. I don't think they slept in separate beds. They, didn't have, they didn't have those One issues. account says that she came to the door and found him. Another account said that she was laying next to him. And why, if she was laying next to him, why didn't they hit her, too? Right, something's not, something's not adding and up. And there's always been a rumor in the family that she may have been less than faithful. There was also a rumor that one of their kids wasn't his. Oh. Mm. Now, she, um, I tell you, I knew her, um, her daughter, and we're going to talk a little bit more about, about her. But after uh, the murder happened, she moved to L.A. Now, family gossip and family legend <laughs> really glamorizes this and makes it sound like a movie. My mom told me she rode to L.A. on houseback looking for the man that killed her husband and gunned him down on the street. Well, that's not what happened. She actually moved. Wait, L.A. from New Orleans on horseback? On, on horseback. Oh, my gosh. You know how in, 1921, she moved to L.A. with her kids. Got an apartment and everything, a house. And it was there she married a man named Angelo Albano, who was not only a distant cousin, because her maiden name was Albano, but was also the widow of her sister, Jenny. Jenny, Jenny had a lot of bad luck, i got to tell you. In the 1915 hurricane, the roof blew off a house. And in the... Um, and uh, a, few year, a, couple of, a few years later... She died of yellow fever the same day as her daughter. And he, so she, he was her widower. She married her sister's widower. I think that type of thing may have been pretty common in Italian yeah, families. And even marrying distant cousins. Because they wanted to keep the race pure. You know, Did that happen in the Bible some too? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, she married her sister's husband. And he goes out one day saying that he's... Um, He's going to get vegetables for dinner or something. And they said they saw him at the farmer's market, but he never returns home. Hmm. And she never, uh, it, it, she, he was never seen again. Nobody ever saw him again. Now, um, who we can attack? Okay, yeah. So later that day, a man named Frank Mumphreys, uh, what was his name? John Mumphreys? Yeah, well, this is another reason, too. Peter Pepitone was uh, was Mike's father, and he confessed that he had shot a, um, shot and killed a man named uh, De Christina in front of the building while his Mike, Mike slept. 
So that's why they thought that maybe that was a Vinden that killed him. It might have been right. the, the, the De Christina family killing him to make make uh, make up for the the murder of that other man. Now, um, after her murder, she moved to L.A. and just before the way and where she married Angela Albano. That was her brother-in-law, her sister's widow. So he, um, Angelo Albano disappears. And uh, right before the wedding, Angelo Albano had dissolved a business partnership with another New Orleans man named Doc Mumphrey, who was living in San Bernardino, California. Doc Mumphrey was known a long list of names, including Joseph, Leone, Leon, Frank, and a lot of last names like Manfrey, Mumphrey, Mumphrey, and even Humphrey. <laughs> Mumphrey. <laughs> he was a pharmacist by day, but he led a double knife because in 1908 he was convicted of tossing a bomb in a grocery store in New Orleans. Hmm. And then uh, numerous other scrapes with the law. So two years to the day, on October 27, 1921, two years to the day of the slaying of Mike Pepitone, that's when Angela Albano left home humming a happy tune to buy vegetables for dinner, according to a story in the Los Angeles Times. This is too much with the groceries. <laughs> Everything's around grocery stores and groceries. I mean, what was going on at the grocery store? Italians like to eat. Haven't you but there was so that? much oh, drama. It's a lot about food. But see, later on, later on, most crimes happen at the restaurants, not, uh, not, not at the grocery store. Now, they said they had seen.